listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So historically, on the Sunday after Christmas, Christians have celebrated the Feast of the Holy Family. That's a celebration of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Like, what was it like for them to be a family? So, in a lot of biographies, we often hear about the childhood of the person. And anytime we have somebody famous, we'd like to know a little bit about what their childhood was like. But interestingly, the Gospels tell us very little about the childhood of Jesus. In fact, Mark and John say nothing of it at all. The Gospel of Mark just opens up with John the Baptist already preaching in the wilderness. And the Gospel of John opens with a poem about the divine word of God, but it says nothing really of the birth or childhood of Jesus. Now, Matthew and Luke both tell us nativity stories. Matthew tells us of the genealogy of Jesus as well as the coming of the Magi and a little bit about how Jesus' birth has fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. Luke actually tells us quite a bit more. Luke tells us about the shepherds. Luke tells us about the Annunciation from Gabriel first to Mary and then later to Joseph. It also tells us about Mary's trip to Elizabeth. It tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. And Luke tells us about both the Song of Mary, which we talked about last week, as well as the Song of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. It tells us about Jesus being taken by his mom and his dad to the temple when he was eight days old, when he was circumcised to kind of keep the Jewish, um, the Jewish custom. And then on that day, it also says that Jesus was named, that it was on his eighth day that they named him Jesus as the angel had told them to do, which does kind of beg a question. I wonder what they called the baby before day eight. Like, were they already calling him Jesus? And that was just like his official naming? Or was he just, you know, little baby? (laughs) You know, hey, sweetheart, how you doing? We're going to name you when we get you to the temple. I'm not sure. But there are other kind of Jewish laws in the Torah that you were supposed to do with your firstborn, particularly if your firstborn was a son. There was the redemption of the firstborn, which would have to, you'd have to go and make sacrifice. And as well, any mother... Uh, would have to go and kind of present herself to the temple for purification to kind of follow the laws of of the Torah. And we see this taking place, or Luke tells us about that as well. So it's about 40 days after Jesus' birth, in keeping with the laws in Exodus 13 and Leviticus 12, we see the Holy Family making their way back to Jerusalem again, back to the temple, and presenting Jesus and Mary's kind of purification and making the sacrifice. And that's when they run into Simeon. And you know that story. And he kind of prophesies. It says that the Spirit was upon him, and he had been promised by God that he would see the long-awaited Messiah. And so when he sees the baby, he just kind of swoops in and takes him and says these wonderful things about him. Uh, kind of in keeping with what Gabriel had said, in keeping with what the, what the shepherds had said, in keeping with everything that we've heard up until this point, with one exception. Simeon turns to Mary and, he's, and says, and a sword will pierce your soul too. 
it's the first indication that maybe not everything will be just perfect, right? It's the first indication that the hope and the expectation, all of that stuff that we celebrate in Advent, all of that kind of uh, expectation that the Jews of the day would have been hoping for was going to perhaps be something different than what they had expected. So this is the sixth day of Christmas. I, I know that in our regular calendar year, right, we, we pay taxes and we live we're as citizens in the United States. And so we kind of follow that calendar as well. But in the church calendar, Christmas starts on Christmas Day, the 25th, and it runs through January the 5th, which are then the 12 days of Christmas, the song that we talked about on Christmas Eve. And we often have these kind of depictions of the Holy Family that are sweet and gentle and peaceful, so much so that we imagine that their experience as a family must be radically different than our experience as a family. Now, I don't want to project onto you, but I, I imagine if your family is anything like mine, it's often not quiet and peaceful and genteel, right? Because families are messy, Families have relationships. Families are sometimes difficult. You know, kids misbehave. And, and people don't do what they want to do. Uh, and people do what they want to do when they shouldn't, right? Uh, we kind of judge ourselves based on our own intentions, and we judge others in our family based on what we our intentions for them, right? And so that's not quite fair, but it is how we often imagine it. Um, it is often how we live. And we often imagine that the Holy Family must have been kind of perfect, I guess, like completely different. But despite the Hallmark card depictions of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus being that perfect picture of peacefulness and serenity, the Holy Family faced the normal joys and sorrows, the ups and downs that every family faced. And we see one example of the childhood of Jesus which is today's primary text. It comes out of Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. This is the only story of Jesus as a child that we get in all of the Gospels. It says this, Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended, they started to return the boy Jesus stayed behind, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it, assuming that he was in the group of travelers or relatives. <clears throat> they went ahead in a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed as his, at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in years, and in divine and human favor. So there's several things I think we can take from this passage of Scripture. According to Luke, the Holy Family were really quite religious. So earlier in chapter 2, we see Jesus getting circumcised. We see them offering the uh, sacrifice according to the law. And now we hear that Jesus has grown up and they've apparently relocated from Bethlehem to Nazareth, right? We get more of that story out of Matthew's gospel. But they're living there, but every year they're coming back down to Jerusalem for Passover. So this is, this is what they're doing now, right? They're practicing the Jewish religion. And so they, this story, um, it says that Jesus was 12 which, uh, interestingly enough, is very close to the same age of Ella who, who played the offertory, right? So just the, just the kind of innocence of the child. Now, bar mitzvahs, um, which is a common Jewish practice today, as far as we know, they were not practiced during the time of Jesus. Like the earliest reference we can see to a bar mitzvah is about, well, several hundred years after Jesus, that, however, has not deterred commentators from imagining that some kind of practice uh, is going on here in the life of Jesus that's similar to what would become bar mitzvahs. That, that Jewish children kind of go through this rite of passage, this kind of growing up, and they memorize the Torah, and they're, they're ready to kind of be presented again, not as children, but as kind of young adults, right, in the temple. In, in some Christian circles, it would be the equivalence of being baptized or dedicated as a baby and then going through confirmation class and saying, yes, this is what I believe. You know, I know who I am and what God I follow. So this is what we see. <clears throat> so they're at Passover, and now Jesus has kind of stayed behind. Now, that might seem a little bit ridiculous, right? Because if you all came to church and you came to church with a certain number of people, you know, in your caravan... And then you got back in your caravan, and you would know how many people you had, right? Especially in a family of three, right? With a mom, a dad, and a kid, you think, well, how in the world could they kind of misplace the one kid? They only had one kid. How could they, how could they lose them? And not lose them for like you know, 10 or 15 minutes because they got into the restaurant and realized they got left back at the church. Seems like that happened to Angela once with her parents. But, um, but you know, lost them for a day. Well, the amount of pilgrims that would have gone from Galilee down to Jerusalem Passover would probably number in the low hundreds, right? And the extended family then of Mary and Joseph, right? So you'd had Jesus' aunts and uncles, you'd had his cousins. And so as they were moving back, the caravan wasn't like a Dodge caravan, right? So the various uh, kind of camels and people on foot and donkeys. And so at the end of the first day, when it's time to kind of camp, because it's a three-day journey from Jerusalem back up to Galilee. At the end of the first day, they start to look for Jesus, and they can't find him. Now, I don't know if this has happened to every parent, but I think it's a pretty common experience that you're somewhere with your children, right? You're at the grocery store, you're at Target, you know, God forbid you're at Disney or somewhere, and you turn around and you can't find your kid, right? Who, can, who, who has that happened to before, right? The scariest experience, right? You say, you turn around, where are they? And so now you're on the hunt, and it's fast and furious, right? And your heart's beating, and you can't wait till you find them. And then when you do find them, you kind of let them have it. Like, you know, I told you to stay with me. So it's not at all your fault, right? 
It's the child that has kind of roamed away. That's how we kind of always do it. But this, this I think, is interesting. It's been three days since they've seen Jesus. So imagine the anxiety that Mary would have had, Mary and Joseph. Now, the fact that it says that it's been three days, in, in the gospel story, we know there's another event where Jesus can't be found for three days. And I think this one kind of foreshadows that one. That there is this time where what we, what we think is most, what, what is most dear and precious to us can't be found. Um, over the holiday season, Angela and I took the girls and we saw the new Mary Poppins. So I would, I would highly endorse it. It's a great film. It's kind of a, it's a great sequel, really, right? So it's not a remake of the old one. The, the um, Banks children in the story have grown up. And now Mary Poppins is the nanny for the children of the boy Banks. No, no spoiler alerts here. But um, none necessary. But they're, they're great new songs and, and new choreography. And it's really, really well done. And there's this one particular song that I really kind of gripped me. And it reminded me of, of this kind of story and this kind of feast of the Holy Family. Because there's, there's these children in the story, and their mother has passed away. And there's a song that Mary Poppins sings for them that says that uh, what, what is most dear is not lost, it's just misplaced. What is most dear is not lost, it's just misplaced. And we see that sometimes, don't we? We, we realize that, that the holiday season can be especially hard, right, because... The, the sense of loss becomes more uh, tangible, more palatable. Um, it's like we can taste it, and it's, and it's not, a, not a good taste. But then we kind of see the expression of our, of our lost loved one in a family member, or we hear a phrase or remember a song or a movie that they so loved, and we realize that they are in some ways living on in our memories and in our practices and in our families. But what's beautiful, truly beautiful about that, is while all of that, of course, is true, that's just a human experience, Christian hope is for much more than that. Not just that someone will live on in our family traditions and songs and, and memories, but that one day we will be reunited in the same way that Mary and Joseph become reunited with Jesus, we will be reunited with the ones that have gone before us. Now, we might say this about Jesus. He's obviously impressive, right? This young man has learned his Torah, and he can sit with the teachers at Jerusalem University there at the temple and kind of uh, tit for tat, go back and forth. And they're impressed with his questions and they're impressed with his answers. But when his parents come and find him, they seem to be a little less than impressed. Yeah. So it's funny, right? Sometimes we have, it seems like we have to go outside of our families to find the kind of affirmation that we need. Like, you know, they, they just think we're great and our family knows us for who we really are, right? And so what Mary and Joseph know is that where Jesus was supposed to have been was in the caravan on the way back to Galilee. But Jesus was here instead. And I think it's interesting that 
We don't, we don't hear from Joseph. He's, he's just kind of a quiet dad, right? He doesn't say much. But Mary, on the other hand, when they see him, kind of exclaims, Child, I love that. Why have you treated us like this? So, historically, the church has taken this passage from Luke and it's paired it with this passage from Colossians. They're placed together in the Christian lectionary. So we opened our, our call to worship today, which is the passage from Colossians. And I think one reason that they fit well together and they fit particularly well today on this kind of feast of the Holy Family is that what we see in Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, we see in ourselves. We see the need to kind of have these virtues that Paul spoke about when he wrote to the Colossians. So I'm going to read this this passage again. This is Colossians chapter 3. As God's God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's that's us, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We just pause there. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If these are the way we treat our family, right, then then we can get through those hard times when someone has not done what we've expected them to do in the same way that Mary had expected Jesus to be somewhere, right? And it's interesting, too, if I just stay on this kind of rabbit trail for a second, that even though Jesus had a reason for being there, right? He says, do you not know it must be about my father's business? And it's interesting that neither Mary nor Joseph, despite everything that had happened before, seemed to understand what he was talking about. That at the end of the story, it says, he got up and he went with his mom and dad back to Nazareth, right? He was an obedient child. I'll say that to the children that are still in the room. Jesus was an obedient child, right? And we all want to be like Jesus. Back to Paul. Paul says this, Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, In word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are the virtues that Paul says that we should have for our family. Now, that family might be our nucleus family, those who actually live in the same home with you. They might be the extended family, those who you kind of go to see on the holidays or who come and travel to see you. Or it might be our community of faith. We are a family. Oasis Community Church. We're part of the family of God. And these are the same virtues we should have with one another, with our families, whether it's our immediate families, our extended families, or our church families. The Holy Family provides a realistic example and call to the holiness of family life. Uh, Mary, Joseph, 
Mary and Joseph, excuse me, are models of discipleship in the infancy narratives. We've seen this over the past few weeks. It's interesting, you see, one thing that faithfulness requires, that faith requires, is the willingness to take risk. Because it doesn't doesn't require any faith to do something that is completely risk-free. Right? If, If you know and you have no variance, no possibility of things kind of going wrong, then it doesn't really require any faith. But it's when things are outside of your control, it's when things can't be fully known, that it requires faith to kind of live that way. So you don't know that someone's going to forgive you when you forgive them. You don't know if you show them humility or kindness or meekness or patience that it's going to be returned. But you have to kind of do it in faith. And when you do it in faith and when you kind of take that risk, then we just kind of lean into God with the expectancy that God will kind of work through all of that and make that right. Love of God and family does not preclude confusion or irritation. Love of God and family does not preclude confusion or irritation. I mean, certainly Mary loved Jesus. But it doesn't mean that sometimes she wasn't confused by him. It doesn't mean that sometimes she wasn't irritated by him. Like in the story today, I mean, I can, I can kind of hear the tone of her voice. Child, why have you done this to us? You know, they search for him in great anxiety. The first, <clears throat> this is the first lost and found story in this gospel. But it's not the last one. Because Jesus will tell other lost and found stories in his parables. He'll tell a parable of the lost and found um, sheep. He'll tell a parable of the lost and found coin. He'll tell a parable of the lost and found prodigal son. Makes me wonder if Jesus' mom didn't kind of remind him time and again, hey, remember that time we lost you at the temple? You know, anytime you have those experiences in your family, the ones where things didn't go just right, those become kind of family folklore, right? We all have those, I think. You can remember when this thing went wrong or that thing went wrong. One time my mom was cooking a holiday turkey in the oven, and she was going to cook it overnight, and she tried some new thing, and it was in this plastic bag. Well, lo and behold, it caught fire. Yeah, and so it's, it's like burning the kitchen. And my older sister, who was just with us over the holidays that she flew home yesterday, she, she wakes up and she smells smoke. So she grabs some clothes out of her closet and stuffs it under her door and gets back in bed. <laughs> she doesn't want to die from smoke inhalation. I mean, we might all burn to death, but she wasn't going to die from smoke inhalation. So nothing serious happened. Uh, you know, the insurance kind of paid. They got a, you know, a new stove out of it or something. We ended up uh, getting the fire out. We spent the night in the car. And um, I, we, I think we had Chinese the next day or something. Oh, no, wait. That was a Christmas story. We didn't actually have Chinese the next day. <laughs> but those stories, those stories kind of live on, right? And, and we bring them up at holiday seasons. And so I wonder, 
After this Passover, after the time that Jesus was 12, how many times at other Passovers did Mary say, or Joseph, or Jesus, or as the story got told with other siblings and cousins and stuff, hey, y'all remember that time that Jesus got left at the temple? And then he was found. And so that story gets told and retold as from Jesus' childhood, probably up into his adulthood. And then we find him as a rabbi, now teaching, telling us these lost and found stories. These stories about this, this precious thing, precious beyond measure, precious beyond any worth that we can uh, kind of ascribe to it, being found. In closing, just a few comments This story anticipates a a radical commitment that Jesus' teaching will later demand from his hearers. What the adult Jesus asks of his followers, the child Jesus here has enacted. He concerns himself with the things that matter to the extent that fundamental family relations are treated as secondary matters, which that's a hard one for us, for Pentecostals and evangelicals. Family comes first. But Jesus even presses on that to say, kind of, God comes first. The family of God comes first. The meaning of the phrase, in my father's house, is kind of ambiguous. And the commentators are kind of all over the map on that. But whatever the phrase means, it claims as first priority the connection of Jesus with God, who is indeed his father. This statement becomes even more impressive when we recall the high priority of Jesus' contemporaries assigned to the loyalty of family connections. In Jesus' time, you think we have a high priority on family. In Jesus' time, there was, a, there was a, a mantra that Jews were to say it every day. It was called the Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy. Here, it starts with this. Uh, hear, o Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's something you're supposed to say every day. There was one exception Uh, One exception, that you didn't have to say the Shema. You could put it off. You could say it later if if your dad had died and you needed to bury him. So then go and bury your father and then come back and then then say the Shema. Like that should should take priority. And this guy comes to Jesus. It's recorded in multiple Gospels, but in Luke chapter 9, a guy comes to Jesus and he recounts his story. He says, Jesus, I believe. I believe you're the one. I, I want to follow you, but my dad has died. I'm going to go bury him, and then I'll be back. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own. Like, come on. Come on, Jesus. Got your priorities out of order there. Family first. Yeah? There's the cost of discipleship here is really quite high. This is no cheap grace. We're not, we're not, it's, 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 it's inexpensive in, in a way, right? <clears throat> it's free of charge, Maybe I should say it like that. It's free of charge, but it's not cheap. It's free of charge. You you, you don't have to pay anything to come to the table. You don't don't buy forgiveness from God. But it costs a lot. And there is an expectation that we live a certain way. It's part of what it means to be part of a family. Did your parents ever tell you that? Don't do that. Why not? Because the Waddells don't do that. Okay. (laughs) Right? And you just kind of fill in the blank of your family. Like, that's not how we behave. As long as we read this passage as a praiseworthy incident in the life of the young Jesus, it remains somewhat innocuous. 
But if we change our lenses and read it through the experience of Jesus' human parents, particularly Mary, it becomes much more troubling. In addition to the theme of Jesus' wisdom and devotion, another theme appears here that continues throughout the gospel, the inability of others to comprehend Jesus and his message. No one, not even Mary, fully understands who Jesus is or what his mission will be. Augustine would say this to his church, God is not what you imagine or what you think you understand. If you understood, you have failed. If you understood him, it would not be God. But it doesn't mean we can't know God truly, and it certainly doesn't mean that we can't love God in a real way. But we're not going to completely understand God. We're not going to completely know all that there is to know. Angela and I have been married 28 years. I don't completely know her, right? The depths of Angela is, is more than what I can plumb. Now, I truly know her, and I think I know her as well as anyone. But I still don't fully know her. There is more to know. There is more to love. And if we can say that about our family, how much more can we say that about God? What Luke conveys here is something more significant than a mere mental or emotional scrapbook story of the infant Jesus. I mean, despite Gabriel's announcement, or perhaps even because of it, Mary does not understand what she sees and hears. In common with all the other followers of Jesus, she must wait and see what will unfold who he will become, and where his father will lead him. She stands with the church itself, trusting this child who comes from God, consenting to obedience, and straining to comprehend. This story ends with this comment that Jesus grew up in wisdom and in stature. And this text is paired with another text historically in Christianity. It's a text from 2 Samuel, or excuse me, from, from Samuel. I can't remember if it's first or second. But it's a story of the young Samuel being kind of given to the temple and his mother Hannah coming visiting him every year. And at the end of it, it says that he grew in wisdom and stature. It's something that I think also applies to us, not just physically, emotionally, and psychologically, but also spiritually. I think we are all growing, or at least we should be, unless we are suffering from some kind of spiritual arrested development, right? That we shouldn't expect to have it all or to always get it right or to to never make a mistake. And we shouldn't expect that of our fellow church members and we shouldn't expect that of our fellow family members. That if we practice these virtues that Paul spoke about with ourselves and with others, those closest to us, those in our extended family, and those in our church family, will find ourselves also, like Jesus and like Samuel before him, growing in wisdom and in stature. So on this day, the day that the church has historically celebrated the Feast of the Holy Family, I pray that we too can celebrate this feast. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.